0: How can someone who not only makes orthotics basically for a living but teaches other people how to do that have a change of heart, and become the preeminent expert in minimalist footwear and natural movement? You're about to find out on today's episode of The Movement. Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first, since those are your foundation. And on this podcast, you know we get rid of the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the outright lies that people tell you about what it takes to run, walk, dance, play, hike, whatever it is you like to do, enjoyably Uh, and more effortlessly. I'm Stephen Sash, and I'm your host for the Movement Movement podcast. I don't know why I say that. You all know who I am. But more importantly, if you like what we're doing, you know the drill. Subscribe, like, share, review. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find out all the places where we are and all the places you can interact with us. And if you have any questions or suggestions or complaints or just want to share a poem or PayPal me some money, you can send that all to move at jointhemovementmovement.com. So, let's jump in. Um, I want to introduce to you uh, my dear friend, Irene Davis. Uh, Actually, it's more fun to say Harvard's Dr. Irene Davis. Uh, But, you know, when I say that, I have to clarify or I have to add, you weren't always at Harvard. You started out at my sister's alma mater, uh, the University of Delaware, where she was a fighting blue hen. Yes. I think the only mascot less intimidating than the Montgomery County Community College slightly annoyed ferret um, but, uh, so, and right now you are not at Harvard uh, you are doing something really wonderful you're vacationing so thanks for taking the time to chat.
1: No worries it's happy to be here
0: and how, how else would you like to introduce yourself I hate introing people because it always sounds too ridiculous so if you're on an elevator and someone says what do you do what do you tell them
1: Hmm. I tell them that I am, I was first a physical therapist and I'm always a physical therapist, but I'm also a biomechanist. So if you put physical therapist and biomechanist together, um, I'm a clinical biomechanist.
0: Okay. That'll work. That works.
1: Elevator speech.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. And actually, before we jump into things, um, I always like to start this podcast since it's about movement and about creating the the whole, um, well, the movement movement is because we're trying to make natural movement, the obvious, better, healthy choice, the way natural food is. And so we always like to start with something movement. Would you, do you have anything you want to share with humans?
1: Sure. One of the things that I like to think about, this is called active standing. And so if you are standing, you can either stand very slouched or relaxed, which is what most people do. Or you can actively stand. And once you start to actively stand, you actually, that starts to become your habitual standing pattern or posture. So it's something that you have to sort of think about in the beginning, but then you eventually habitually adopt it. And what active standing is, is you stand, um, obviously you're standing, your feet <laughs> come straight ahead. And the first thing that I think about is doming my feet. So for those people who don't know what doming is, you press your toes, you straighten your toes, stiffen your toes, press them down into the ground and then pull the ball of your foot back towards your heel. So you're basically shortening your foot, sometimes called short foot exercise um, and contracting those muscles of your arch. So you start there and then you um, tuck your butt in a little bit to get a neutral pelvis. You tighten your abdominals. You pull your shoulders back a little bit, slide your head back a little bit um, and then stand there. And it's a very different stand. If you take that stance and then relax everything. You'll see the kind of your your habitual stance posture. So I want everybody to start thinking about incorporating active stance into their day.
0: And I want to add uh, the first instruction: take off your shoes. So oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I also want to add that, um, uh, Irene, the framing uh, that you have in the camera is in part because since you are at the beach, um, it, it just looks like you're doing this semi naked, which I think is awesome. But uh, <laughs> no, which right now, you know, you're just framed it here, which is great. It's sort of I have a proof that you are not naked. That is, that is my kind of thing. So I only have one question that I plan to ask you. And it's one that I know the answer to because you and I talked about it before, but it's one of my favorite stories. And that is what was your moment of awakening from being someone who was showing physical therapists, how to post people's foot, put them in orthotics to what you're doing now, which could not be more diametrically opposed to where that all began.
1: No, there wasn't a moment, Stephen. It was really an evolution of thought. And I really encourage people to keep their minds open because sometimes the truth that you have today is not the truth you're going to have in five years from now. And the truth five years ago is not the truth of today. And, and you know, we have new information, we um, gain new perspectives. And, you know, I think what happened is I had started doing my work in um, understanding impacts, and I was looking at strike patterns, thinking that forfeit striking was sort of the unicorn. You know, only a small percentage of people do it, but understanding just the difference between rear foot striking and forefoot striking Understanding also the relationship between the impacts that you have as a rear foot striker and different injuries. And that's kind of how I started my, my career. I started out looking at impacts and, tib- and tibial stress fractures, and then kind of continued into other injuries like plantar fasciitis um, and um, patellofemoral pain syndrome, some of the really common injuries that runners sustain. And then also, this is kind of at the time, it was sort of at the time that Born to Run came out, right. um, and Chris McDougall came to visit uh, our lab. I didn't know he was writing a book at the time. So this was before Born to Run came out. And he wanted me to, to look at his um, ground reaction forces when he ran barefoot and with shoes. And it started to make me think about barefoot you know, uh, running and what and an article had come out. Oh gosh, and I think in the eighties and looking at barefoot running, but I never really paid much attention to it. Um, but then when we started talking about this, and and he'd been you know down with the Tom Tomahumara, he was talking about how these individuals tend to run on the ball of their feet. And so you know, now I'm thinking, okay, I did this work in forefoot striking. Forefoot striking has less impacts. Barefoot runners typically run forefoot striking, and less impacts seem to be less injurious. And you know, and then I kind of connected with Dan Lieberman, and he gave me an evolutionary biologist kind of perspective, which right. was good for me. And I started thinking about that, and you know, maybe this is really the way we're adapted to run. And so it really was a slow process. I, honestly, probably over the course of uh, five years, three to five years of thinking about it and sort of coming to it. Um, there was a study that came out in 2010, a series of studies by, um, by Joe Knapik in which he was looking at different shoes and looking at the motion control shoe, the cushioning shoe, you know, and questioning sort of, um, whether these shoes actually prevent injury. So what he did is he took half his recruits, um, and he did this in the Army, the Marines, and maybe the Air Force, and then they combined it all in one big meta-analysis. And so there was something like 8,000 altogether. And half of them were prescribed a shoe based on their foot type. So if they had a high arch rigid foot, they got the cushioned cushion shoe. If they had a flat sort of hypermobile foot, they got the motion control shoe. And then if they had a neutral foot, they got the neutral shoe. Right. And then the other half all got the neutral shoe. So, and what he did is he followed them for, uh, not exactly sure how long, I can't remember how long, but maybe through their, their recruit training, um, and found that there was no difference in injuries between those who were prescribed footwear based on their foot type. Right. That made me question because I was teaching scores of physical therapists, this sort of approach to, to, um, to foot. To, to, to footwear and after seeing that i thought you know this the, you know the, there's eight thousand subjects in the study and you're still not finding anything maybe we should question this paradigm maybe everyone should be in neutral shoes so that was kind of my first kind of thought about footwear mm. but then when i started looking at you know how footwear affects foot strike um it started making me question even neutral footwear because foot footwear basically if you put a hunk of cushion, a hunk of rubber underneath the heel, people are going to land on it.
0: So wait, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, so you know, I'm making notes because there's a couple things you brought up that I'm, I definitely want to bring up, but okay, got it. Keep going.
1: All right. So for those who, you know, if you put a hunk of cushion on a hunk of rubber underneath the heel, people are going to land on that heel. Why is a good question, but I think in part, if you land on your heel, people tend to stride out for right. giving cadence. You can go faster in a sense. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a payoff for that, but there's also a cost in that you right. get this so, unlocked. Um, so yeah, so that's what made me start to question footwear. So, and then footwear and foot strike, I mean, we, can, we can go into that maybe a little bit later, but there's definitely an interaction between those two.
0: It's funny you say that um, because so you and I last year were at the American College of Sports Medicine's annual conference and both the guys from Brooks and Adidas started their presentation by, let's use the phrase in quotes, quoting Ben O'Nig, researcher from Canada, by saying that everyone has a preferred movement pattern and footwear doesn't matter. And I, I, I was biting my tongue because there was not an opportunity for me to counter that. Um, what I think I might've said is I was in the lab uh, with Bill Sands, who was former head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee, where what he would do when he got in his lab is he would have you wear your favorite pair of shoes and then go barefoot and then try on every other pair of shoes that you brought in with you um, and film you on his giant treadmill that could go up to about 30 miles an hour uh, at 500 frames a second. And what he saw was the exact opposite, that every different shoe you wore changed your gait, unless you were like a super, super elite athlete where you could pretty much put cinder blocks on their feet and nothing changed. So I was amazed that that's what that they started with that idea that footwear didn't matter.
1: Yeah. And footwear matters a lot.
0: And then similarly, I actually, so it seems like one of my, I was going to say jobs or goals, I'm not sure which it is, um, is to annoy the CEOs of major footwear brands. And I had a conversation with the CEO from Brooks, who they have their run signature program where, you know, they put little dots around your knees and watch you squat. And then have you run in socks. This is an important thing. They don't want you to think you can do this barefoot in socks on a treadmill. And then they somehow come up with some conclusion about which brook shoe you're supposed to wear. And I just asked Jim the simple question, well, where's the evidence that that improves performance or reduces injury? And that was the end of the conversation.
1: Yeah, there is none. I, I wanted to pick up on when you, your, your comment about how footwear doesn't matter. Not, not that you think that, but that other people think that. You know what made me really, really believe that? is when I came up to, to found the Spaulding National Running Center, we've now seen over 700 patients. And every single patient has come through our center. I watch them in slow motion um, run close up of their foot, right, back side, barefoot, in their shoes, which 95% are in traditional shoes, and in a pair of minimal shoes. And, and what I see is what really convinced me that footwear really matters. I mean, the changes, it's not always, I mean, and the changes.
0: no, but significant,
1: significantly in, in the majority of people footwear changes the way they start. Yeah.
0: When I was in Bill's lab, we, um, we did a little pilot study where cause we were what he saw when I was running just in, in our original sandal, which was just, you know, a piece of rubber strapped to your foot, which we still sell. Um, he noticed that my running was basically the same when I was in those compared to when I was barefoot. So we did a little pilot study. We brought in people and we had them run either barefoot. Well, all four of these conditions, barefoot in a pair of sandals that I made for them in a pair of five fingers. Cause we got people who all own five fingers. Actually, no, we even brought some, I don't think people own them, uh, or in whatever their regular shoe was. I don't know why that's four. That's a weird way to do four. There we go. Mm-hmm. And what we uh, what we saw was two things that were really interesting. Uh, m- m- actually, three. One was that, like you said, almost everybody, when they switched to barefoot or in our sandals, gait changed in really, really positive ways for about 90% of the people. The second thing is that, uh, and it was very consistent, the second thing was that when some people who were accomplished barefoot runners when they were running barefoot, they look great. And when they put on the pair, the five fingers, let alone their minimalist shoes, they often started overstriding and heel striking, but here's the kicker. They didn't know they were doing it. And that was because they were wearing one of those shoes that had more padding than the others because they were made for running, big air quotes. Um, and then there was, uh, what was the, th- oh, and the third thing was the people who who didn't have an automatic gait change in some way to something where, and when I say better, what I mean was getting their feet underneath their center of mass, landing forefoot or midfoot in that case, just not you know, pawing at the ground, just things that are kind of seemingly obvious at this point. But that time, this is 2000. 10-ish uh, were sort of radical, the, it took very, very simple cues to get them to do something different where they suddenly felt better. It was just kind of giving them the idea that they could do something different instead of trying to run the same way, and they did. It was um, it was really spectacular to see, and what cracked me up, of course, is how surprised everybody else was.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned midfoot striking, and it, it is something I want to bring up because
0: I'm, I knew you would.
1: Yeah, just, I mean, it's kind of like partial minimal shoes, minimal shoes, and traditional shoes. Alike.
0: Well, hold on, wait, wait, I'm going I'm to pause you there, because this is, this is something, I, I don't know if, if you know that I do this. So, you, I know you break things down into traditional shoes, partial minimalist shoes, and I'm going to ask you to define that versus minimalist, and I say that when you say that, you're just being politically correct, and I redefine it as minimalist, fake minimalist, and normal.
1: Okay, <laughs> I, 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 I buy that. <laughs> But the studies that have been done in the partial minimal shoes show that people run pretty similar to when they run in traditional shoes. And it's not until you get to true minimal shoes that you really start to see the changes. Yeah. And so this idea, and I used to think part in the beginning, thought, well, this is a nice compromise. Like, people like compromise. They don't like right. to on the edge. They like to be in the middle.
0: I mean, people do like to find something in the middle, but part of that is when the whole minimalist thing kicked in, the first response from the big shoe companies was, don't do this, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to get Ebola and you're going to step on hypodermic needles and the turtles will die and dolphins will come beaching into your house, whatever it was. And then by the end of 2010, they're all coming out with partial minimalist shoes and saying that those products gave you the same benefits as being barefoot, not even compared to other you know, real minimalist products. Um, and uh, And then the companies that weren't willing to go there, I mean, Adidas is the one that pops into my mind first and foremost, like, oh, here's a whole transition program, go from here to here to here, right. you know, lower, lower, lower. And everyone's going, well, yeah, that makes sense, unless you think about it when it makes no sense. Um, so yeah, the the, the the idea of partial minimalist is definitely, uh, or fake minimalist, is definitely catering to people thinking that, you know, maybe I, I can't make a, such a radical change right away, which right. is ludicrous.
1: I mean, you can't make a radical change right away. I don't think that's ludicrous. I think um, you do need to, to gradually transition.
0: Um, well, yes, be- but but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you have to tra- you know gradually drop the height of your shoes. You have to yeah. make a gradual transition to your movement. Yes, you don't but really no. need yeah. the
1: changes until you don't until you're in a minimal shoe. So what right. we do. Obviously, we we do try to transition people really slowly. That means the dosage that you get as well as building the capacity because it does load your body differently. It loads the calf differently. It loads the arch differently. So I do think it's smart to to transition, but we don't do it that way. We don't go from a thick. We do the other way. But I started the conversation with talking about Midfoot striking. Midfoot
0: and forefoot, yeah.
1: That was another compromise that I always thought was the way to go. And I actually, before really studying it, said, okay, midfoot striking is a nice compromise. You don't have to work on your calf so much. It doesn't yeah. look your calf so much, but you don't get the impacts. Well, once we started looking at our data, and we have data from the ground reaction force data as well as tibial shock. Right. And what we found is that when you look at tibial shock or load rates, which are an indication of... Um, and we've shown to be related to injury. So it's how fast your body's being loaded. They tend to be higher in rear foot strikers who have an impact peak. Those load rates, um, are actually not statistically different between rear foot and midfoot strikers. Midfoot strikers look like they're a little bit lower, but they're not at all significantly different. And the same with tibial shock. They're similar to rear foot strikers. These are people who are habitual, um, midfoot strikers. And this is what I think we have to do is we have to study people in their habitual states, taking someone and making them a forefoot or a midfoot striker or whatever, or taking a forefoot making is not going to be their habitual state. And, right. and I don't think the data or not as valid.
0: This is an argument that I, that I've had with Roger Crom here at CU, where he takes people and has them switch to something barefoot and shows, Hey, their VO2 max is, you know, worse. It's like, well, yeah, they're doing something brand new. They don't know how to do it. So okay. how is this I love him?
1: Roger. Love him. I think he's awesome. Uh, but I, I've had that same conversation with him. It's even yeah. the one, you know, he's done the stride length and the oxygen consumption. I've asked him that question too. He said, once somebody is accommodated with different, stride, then that might be there. You might shift. You well,
0: know, and that, that and, and I, I similarly like Roger very much. And we see each other at track meets every summer. And, and I, I've made that comment. And I've also said, look, um, when you're studying barefoot compared to whatever, you're bringing in people that you're calling accomplished barefoot runners, I know all the barefoot runners in town. I'm one of those barefoot runners in town and nobody that I know has been in your lab for those studies. So I don't know who you're studying. I mean, I, I suspect I know who he's studying and it's people who do some training on grass in bare feet, which is just not the same.
1: It's not the same. No, yeah. It's
0: not and then and you can run them on a hard treadmill. One of his studies was actually, he took a treadmill where he put 10 millimeters of foam that he had gotten oh, from okay. Nike yeah. on it, which was interesting, of course, that no Nike shoe has 10 millimeters of foam for one. Um, and the other was, again, it was, I don't know what it was, but the whole reason for doing that or one of the reasons for doing that was looking at VO two max as a, as an analog for performance or as an analog for efficiency. And I thought that was an interesting bit of hand waving because no one in the barefoot world ever claimed that if you run in bare feet, it's more energetically efficient. And of course, nor, nor is there any correlation between VO two max and performance. Cause if there was, we would just see who had the biggest VO two max that day and give them a trophy. So, you know, there's ways around that. So I, I thought that was very interesting and like, I'm not trying to, throw Roger under the bus when I say this, but over a beer, I said to him, we know that studies or that meta-analysis of studies of pharmaceutical drugs show that if the pharmaceutical company is paying for the study, the results tend to err in their favor more often than if it's an independent study. And I said, you know, your lab is Nike-sponsored, so don't you think there's anything in there that might be problematic? And I'm not surprised that he said no, and I don't know that there is, but, you know, it gives me some pause.
1: Yeah. It's hard because, you know, when someone wants to fund your lab, right, that it's yeah. hard to that. But it's, it, it also does, it gives an apparent conflict of interest. I mean, I, I trust Roger. I think he's very, is a lot of integrity. But, yeah, it's, I find it difficult. I've tried not to, to take footwear money um, for that reason unless I offer. So, for example, our Boston Marathon study, we went to every footwear company, every one. And the only people that were willing to to support it, and the, the study wasn't about footwear. It's about running right. outside, and, but it was Vibram. So Vibram did support one of those studies. But, you know, we offered it to Adidas. We offered it to everybody. We went to all of them. So in that case, it's a little bit different. But it is hard. I mean, I, I, I understand why people do it. I mean, Joe Hamill's had a lot of commercial support as well, as well as Ben O'Nigg and all of those folks. But it does it does give at least an apparent, you know for the parent complaint yeah.
0: I mean, we're concerned about that from our side. Lena, in particular what really wants to fund some studies, assuming we have the cash to do that, which right now all our cash is going in the inventory. But it's something that if we raise some extra capital, she wants to fund some studies. And, and I said it, it's inherently problematic because people are totally going to say, well, you know, of course it showed that whatever you're doing is better because you put up the money. It's funny, backing up to the ACSM thing, <laughs> this is something I quote often. Um, I don't remember. I think it was the guys from Adi, who said, you know, well, we say that we're all about reducing uh, injury and improving performance. We don't have any studies to show that because doing that would be very time-consuming. It take a long time, cost a lot of money, have a lot of confounds, that would make the results sort of suspect. And again, it wasn't my position to say anything, but my thought was, dude, if you could make a shoe demonstrably scientifically better than the guy sitting next to you, and that was a guy from Brooks, that's worth billions of dollars a year. And you're saying you haven't done it because it's difficult? I mean, you know, I know that there, I've heard rumors of studies that have been done internally from larger companies where it did not prove what they wanted it to prove, and those studies have not seen the light of day. But I mean, it couldn't be more clear that if a shoe was significantly demonstrably, better people would be shouting that from the rooftops and there could not be more incentive for a lot of companies to have done that over the last 50 years and no one ever has and in large part because they're just reinventing the same broken wheel i was just at um at ispo this big trade show in germany I said somewhat um, apolitically that because I kind of lost the urge to be politically correct or diplomatic. I said, if you walk around this hall and just swap the logos for most of the shoes, you wouldn't be able to tell there's maybe one or two brands where it would make a difference. And even then you'd go, oh, okay, looks the same. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. So actually I thought of one other thing that I want, I want you to talk about that um, from a previous conversation of ours early on, when we first started chatting, one of the things you said to me, which was very, striking and frankly kind of both inspiring and sad at the same time and also riled me up you'll see where i'm going with this as soon as i tell you what it is was that one of your big hopes was that before you die people understand the impact of what you've been discovering and researching and studying and sharing with people can i'm really curious what your thoughts are about why it's been first of all why it is that we in the natural movement space need to prove Anything, because we're not the intervention. The intervention is what's been happening for the last fifty years, but but then why it's so uh, shockingly difficult to get people to hear it, understand it, try it, experience it, etc., when it is so screamingly obvious.
1: So I don't think I exactly said what you said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's the way I'm telling it.
1: The impact of my work before I die. I guess I, what I really want to see is for us to revert back to allowing the feet to function more naturally in kids and that it becomes the norm.
0: And that was, oh, that was part of it. No, part of what you, part of the other thing that you said in that same conversation to the best extent of my memory, which I am yeah. never claiming is accurate was, yeah, if we could just get kids to be doing this now in 20 years, we wouldn't be treating adults for all you the problems be they have right now.
1: In these conversations, like there'd right. be more conversation, right? right? And I would be very interested to know what the injury patterns would be like. You know, we all can say what we think and we can hypothesize, but we don't know. Um, But I did a search on the term running injury, um, a medline search from 1900 to 2000, just to see over the last hundred years. There was nothing in the literature. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't one study that didn't have running injury in its title, but was still, but there was not one study with running injury in its title until 1977, right? Not one. And then afterwards, there are thousands and thousands of them now from 1977 to present.
0: When did Jim Fix's book come out?
1: Eighty. Was
0: that I, uh, I think I was in high school. I graduated in the 80s, so like late 70s. So probably somewhere right around then, but certainly not. 77 is definitely not the time in which the running boom kicked off. So it wasn't that, you know, so that predates that. But that's really interesting.
1: It's very interesting. And what that tells me, so the, the very first running report injury report that I could find was 1971, a newly minted runner's world out a survey to its 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 readership yeah and asked about injuries and they found that um the people who reported injuries i mean of, of the people that that replied i think it was something like 20 something percent had gotten knee. i used knee injuries as an example and then they repeated it in 73 they had 800 runners in 71 and then 73 they repeated two years later and they had Um, 1,600 runners, and then the knee injuries increased. And so you could start to see that things were increasing um, just from that early injury study, but that wasn't published. That was something that was in (laughs) the first published article. Got it. You have to think that if injuries were happening a lot, that they'd be in the medical literature. Right. I mean, yeah. medical literature has been around for a very long time. Yeah. And people have run, been running marathons for a very long time. Now, I, I don't think you can disassociate, though, the running boom with the footwear change. I think, I think they There's kind relationship. of relationship together, right? There yeah. is got to be a relationship yeah. there. So more people were running, right, who were less fit, but they weren't yeah. as unfit as we are today.
0: Man. No, because look, the people, I mean, yes, it was a boom, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, the boom happened on day one and suddenly everybody started running dis- regardless of their physical state of fit- f- state of physical fitness. I mean, the first people to adopt it were the people who were already kind of hip to the idea to begin with. You didn't start seeing, you know, really overweight people getting into marathons till for a while. It um, it, it, yeah.
1: yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because what happened is you had people who were not used to running, running in flats. And this is, this comes from talking with um, Jeff Johnson, who was one of the, early, he worked with Nike very early on, he actually came up with a Nike name I believe, and huh. I, I, I had a conversation with him, he doesn't have email I think he has one of those phones on the wall with a curly <laughs> <laughs> you just get the sense of it and he told me about, you know, how they were he, he was running in, in the 50s on plimsoll shoes, like the just a rubber sole and canvas yep. to keep it on top, and he said they had very few injuries, very, very anecdotal but he said what happened is when other people started running, so people who were not used to running and they were getting these reports from these sports podiatrists that, that they're having these injuries and they brought three very well-known sports podiatrists in um, that is, Vixie, Steve Sabotnik, and Harry Hilavnik, I think anyway they um, they came in and they said, "Look, uh, you know we think that they're they're getting injuries from hitting too hard, not enough cushioning, and too much motion, and also because they were used to walking and shoes typical walking shoes had two inch heels, and so now they're putting a strain on their Achilles, so what they did is rather than have runners adopt adapt to the shoe and the footwear that all the other runners were running in, which were basically minimal. Right. They started adapting the shoe to the person,
0: or to this idea. To
1: this idea, this idea that did to, to the right. That 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 you need to you know give them that relief in the Achilles tendons, so and now you've got an elevated heel. Give them cushioning because they're you know there's that's a problem because they hadn't learned how to attenuate their load yet. Um, give them motion control. Well, what happened is the very, the very adaptations that they made actually, I believe, have Further created problems. Well, in one of those cycles.
0: Well, a I agree. B, um, you, you know, I, you and I have another mutual friend, Mike Friton, who says he was at a track meet. I don't remember with how many of those three guys, and said, so you know, your idea has become ubiquitous, and this is, it's just this is footwear design now. What do you think? And the response was, biggest mistake we ever made. Wow. And, you know, the whole thing about heel strike to begin with or why it happens, it's funny. If you look at the, not funny, if you look at the videos that Lieberman brought back from Africa with habitual barefoot runners and you look at their foot strike pattern, I mean, their heel is like so close to the ground as it's coming through the swing phase. And then at touchdown, it's barely off the ground. So if you just throw something that's more than a half an inch on their heel, they're going to hit their heel in front of their body because they are not unlike anyone else they're not going to just change their movement patterns immediately so if they don't change their movement pattern right away they're going to land on the heel and then they have that padding and of course you know calcaneus heel bone is a ball so that's unstable so now you need motion control and if you're landing with your foot, uh, by the time your foot comes down, if it's totally flat, your plantar fascia are in this weak position. And so if you're going to do anything to deal with that, you're going to put in, quote, arch support. So you don't need to use your arches, put it all together. And now you have something where you're preventing all sorts of everything, not letting the foot function in any way. And what a shock that we're getting, having problems. I mean, it just seems like this obvious evolution of of errors.
1: Yeah, so that's why it's hard for me to understand why people are so dug in. I mean, I know there's financial investment and scientific investment. I
0: think, I, I think some of it's simpler. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, sort of segue into something funny. Um, i got two notes of things that I want to say. But the first one, um, I have to tell the story this way. Uh, or I have to set it up this way or it's just too offensive. So about 10, 15 years ago, one of my best friends calls me. And he says, uh, you know what your biggest problem is? I said, oh, this will be fun. (laughs) And he says, your biggest problem is that you just tell people if they're factually incorrect or logically inconsistent or in some cognitive bias or anything like that where they're not thinking clearly. And uh, you do that because you find it really interesting when people do that to you. And you think they're going to find it interesting and go, oh, but mostly they just think you're an asshole. And I said, oh my God, I've literally never put it together like that before. And he said, see, you just did it, So, which is true. So in a similar vein, I'm going to say, um, I have a theory about what your biggest problem is. And your biggest problem, and, this is, and it's not that it's your biggest problem, but I think this is an answer to the question of why it's so hard, is that human beings, when they come to a decision, think they've done it rationally. They think it makes sense, and especially with all the marketing behind the footwear we're talking about, they get a lot of evidence for that, despite the fact that that footwear hasn't worked for them, and they keep changing it over and over and over, and the story keeps changing over and over and over. I've referred to this as um, uh, the boy who cried, or the shoe company that cried wolf. The only difference being that we keep showing up to see if there's a wolf, despite the fact that there never has been for 50 years. But because they've made this rational decision... It's also energy inefficient, evolutionarily, and energy inefficient to make up new new ideas, to come up with alternatives and counterfactuals to what you already believe. And what... What you're often doing brilliantly, I believe, is presenting more rational information. And it's, there's a lot of psychological literature showing that when you present someone with information that conflicts with their existing belief, it actually makes them dig in harder, because it's just, that's the way we're wired. And I I, it makes me wonder, like, what's the way around that? And certainly my experience has been that experience is one way around that. But I think there's got to be another way to encourage people to have the experience to begin with in beyond giving them all the data that shows that what they're currently doing isn't going to give them what they want. I mean, how many studies have there been showing that highly cushioned maximalist shoes don't reduce impact loading forces and yet people still buy them thinking that it's going to be cushy and make them feel better and uh, and feel be better for their knees when we don't see that. So, this is the, I think this is the the kind of conundrum that you may find yourself in is that you're you are Um, both creating and discovering and inspiring all of this information, but information isn't going to be the thing that that makes the change.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm wired that way, you know, the, (laughs) you and me both evidence is my coin. It's my metric. It's, you know, so I, 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 I keep thinking that if we can demonstrate that, like when people run in minimal shoes, it's been shown that the Achilles is stronger and stiffer. It's been shown that muscles are stronger um stronger feet are gonna be healthier feet. And it just makes sense to me. But
0: I But Irene, don't I need arch support?
1: Yeah, I know. I mean
0: seriously, that isn't don't you get that as the as the follow up? Like, but don't well, I, I need
1: one of the arguments I get, which is maybe not a bad argument, is that having some padding in their shoes allows them to run farther. And there may be some truth to this.
0: I'm not going to argue that one, but, but because there's, especially with ultra runners where by the time they're in the last part of the race, you know, their form has degraded to complete crap and they just need to do something to get through the rest of the race. I'm all for it. But for the average recreational runner, it's like, just, you know, do a mile less and be healthy.
1: Well, so this is it. It's because people, I always tell them, you're outrunning your capacity. Your body has the capacity to cushion and to control your your steps. If you want to run farther than your body has the ability, it has capacity for, then maybe you need the crutch, so to speak. You know what I mean? So, I mean, there is a trade-off, I think, in terms of that. And if people choose to do that, fine with it. But I'm trying to promote it. If we got people and kids in minimal shoes and, and that's all they ever wore. Yeah. And they have built over the years the capacity to be able to run longer distances. There are people, plenty of people that run marathons in minimal shoes or barefoot. Oh, yeah. Um, but not all people can. And, and so that's, that's the argument that I get. And I say to them, like, if you want to run a marathon and you don't have the capacity to do it in minimal shoes, then you probably shouldn't.
0: It's funny. Um, when I was in Germany, one of the guys that I was on the panel... With was uh, from New Zealand, and I brought up Arthur Lydiard, who, for people who don't know, was the coach of New Zealand runners. He was um, probably the most successful coach in history, especially if you think about the population he was working with, this tiny little country, and the number of world champions and gold medal or Olympic medalists that he produced. And uh, there are a number of things that were interesting. One is um, Arthur had people doing tons and tons of mountain hill training in the shoes that he made for them which were super thin soled you know they look like mine frankly uh, and even this guy from New Zealand who is now repping for a company that makes big thick padded shoes was saying oh yeah that's what he did and it was great he believed that you know having foot strength was really important and and he's saying this while wearing a shoe that does the exact opposite of what Lydiard did while talking about how how great Lydiard's methods were and i heard a story that Lydiard and Bill Bowerman from Nike had like this knockdown drag out argument about shoe design after Nike started doing the elevated heels and padding. And Lydiard saying, you're just going to kill people. And is saying, yeah, but they're selling really well. So, you know, it's, but it is interesting. The related to the phenomenon of people outrunning their capacity is, oh, wait, where did that thought go? Oh, it's people using elite athletes as the example of what they should do. Mm-hmm. And I and I keep saying, you know, you're not a 105 pound Kenyan guy who runs a marathon in 205. You're a 200 pound whatever guy who runs a 430. And mm-hmm. so to think that what you're what he's doing on his feet is what you should be doing, what you should be wearing is ridiculous. And of course, the other issue is that I mean, so much changes when you're you know running at speed. People talk about well, we've analyzed all this video data. And look, this guy's heel is touching the ground first when he runs. Like, yeah, yeah, but he's running um, at basically 13 miles an hour. And by the time he actually loads his foot, it's a whole different story. So yes, his heel is like barely touching the ground before he gets any loading. Um, And people just, again, like you said, people want a simple story. And ironically, I think we have the simplest story. Your feet are supposed to bend and move and flex and feel the world. And that's what you should be doing.
1: I know. You know, the other thing I think we have to remember too, is that if you follow like this whole mismatch theory of evolution and you believe that we should move the way we're adapted to move, we really weren't adapted. I don't believe to run 26 miles relatively on a straight path, um, on hard surfaces only. I I mean, I think we were adapted to run on hard surfaces, soft surfaces, variable surfaces Our running back then what we adapted for, was really stop and go changing direction yeah. kind of thing. So maybe we're setting ourselves up in that way for injury and maybe for repetitive use, maybe people need that footwear to be able to, to do that kind of running. Well, I'm just, being, I'm just, I'm yeah, being yeah,
0: no, that's interesting. That. Well, I, what's intriguing to me about that is thinking about that the fastest growing movement in running right now is trail running. And I think that that may be because it just does have that more,
1: variability
0: yeah that is helpful and feels good and is interesting and compelling and um, far
1: less injurious
0: yes well yeah yeah yeah. and and, the, and what's so funny I, I went for a run um up one of the mountains outside of boulder with a, a, a woman a couple of years ago who i was in a pair of sandals and she was doing it barefoot barefoot and because she had spent a lot of time practicing and got really good not to, about what people think is that she has some massive calluses under her foot but she just got really good at mapping the terrain and running with the terrain and people looked at us like we were the crazy ones and we were the ones that had uh, this uh, insane look on our face called smiling. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Here's another question that just popped in my head um, backing up to after you do your elevator pitch. um, I'm imagining that I'm not the only one who, uh, when I tell people what I'm doing, they bring up the Vibram lawsuit and as seemingly proof that this whole idea is ridiculous. How do you respond when people toss that one in your direction? <laughs> I love that look. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, uh, the first thing I tell them is that the Vibram lawsuit was not about injury, but it was about false advertising because Vibram talked about how they, it strengthens her feet. There had been a study by with the Nike free showing that when you take away arch, arch muscles got bigger and they were kind of, I think piggybacking on that. They yeah. That's what they were sued on. So that's the first thing right. that I tell people. But the other thing I tell people is if you went to the gym and lifted a hundred pounds, the very first time it got injured, do you think anyone would say, don't ever go to the gym again? Or would they say, don't do it that way? And that's, that's exactly what's happening. You can't just take and put a pair of shoes on that now puts a greater demand on your foot the medial lower leg, the posterior lower leg, primarily. Those are the areas that get loaded the most. And run your regular mileage and think that you're going to be able to do that. It's like going out and playing seven cuts of tennis when you've never played. You're going to injure yourself. You're going to be really sore or at worst you're going to injure yourself.
0: Right. Yeah. I also add that uh, the lawsuit was settled out of court, which means, and for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Um, and I think that I've had this conversation with, with Tony Post, who at the, was no longer CEO of Vibram at the time. And Tony says he wouldn't have settled the case because of that Nike free study. And just, you know, I think there were some other dots that they connected. Yeah, where they I, just no yeah, I,
1: think, I think, you know, it, it had, they had shown that a shoe that does not have arch support results. And and now there have been many more studies that have
0: supported that.
1: So, But yeah, it was unfortunate, but it wasn't about injury.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and backing up to what you just said about many studies and what I said earlier about the uh, American college of sports medicine thing. So the guys from Brooks and Adidas, they both misquote Ben nig Oh, actually, I don't know if I told you this. I had a talk with Benno's son, Sandro, and I was about to kind of read him the riot act about this idea of preferred movement pattern and, and how it's just not the case when, from what I've seen in the lab and what I see with the people who come and wear zero shoes. And before I could finish the sentence, he said, Oh, what my dad was saying is that you have a preferred movement pattern that's difficult to change assuming you're basically wearing the same kinds of shoes which every shoe is basically the same kind of shoe but he never said that if you switch to something truly minimalist or barefoot that your gait's going to be the same it's definitely going to change right away it's like there we go so but you know completely taken out of context but the reason that I bring that up is that when these guys said we don't have a whole lot of research to back up what we're claiming i had a slide that was just little brief screenshots from, I think, 40 different minimalist studies that I just found by searching on PubMed for minimalist shoes. And just, you know, one after another showing the benefits thereof. Or the simple thing, it amazes me that we need to pull out studies that show if you use their, your feet, they get stronger. If you don't use them, they get weaker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. Like it, it, that's, that's the part is it seems so simple to me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I just think you're right. I think people... I think that they get kind of stuck in their dogma. They really do. It's like, it's it's the way that they think and it's hard to think differently. That's why I try to tell young scientists to keep your mind open because I was the person that made every orthotic, you know, when I was at the University of Delaware, I was the person who was in the clinic doing foot orthotics. I taught it in the curriculum. I taught people motion control, cushioning. I taught all that. Right. And I believed it. But right. once I started to think a little bit differently and I started putting things together and reading different things, my, it made me think differently. And you've got to be open to new ideas. Like,
0: well, I want to back up to the first part of that. So how did you learn those things to begin with?
1: from someone else who taught me, who who you know was basically, it was actually someone that I worked with and, and did my PhD with, who was really very much a, a foot person, came from um, a really strong uh, hospital that worked on, on feet. It was more diabetic feet, but mm. but had done a lot with orthotics. And, and it's kind of what you're taught. I, I, I was taught some of it in school, I think. It was sort of from my peers and what I was taught in school. I think I just... You know, you kind of get that mindset. So that's why it's important that we get this back into the schools.
0: Well, and, and, well, and then, You know, again, I, I want to follow it back in time. So they learned it from someone. Yes. So you know, the, it, but the question is when, because what I I don't know if this is true, but there's two components. One, just for for footwear in general, we know that the let's call it the modern athletic shoe is a relatively new phenomenon. But now, by but you know now it's been 50 years and so we're past two generations so parents are teaching this to their kids before they ever even walk into a shoe store so the shoe companies don't need to do any of the heavy lifting anymore they can just say hey don't you want to be like this guy they don't need to justify any of their designs although they try to
1: no they do they have them run in the in the shoe store with really very little experience yeah. tell you how you're running and give pull out a shoe I, I think that's where it's coming from a lot of it is coming from the the, the running shoe stores and, and marketing
0: well and well, in the marketing because someone because how really much well yeah, but I, but I think about um, i don 't know about the history of orthoses, but my hunch is that whoever came up with the idea of putting an orthotic in a shoe and posting the media at large and doing whatever else they need to do, especially for runners. Um, then realized that this is a way for practitioners to make a bunch of cash and created a basically a marketing plan that once that initial push was done, the rest of it just rolled. And if people look back and found that initial event, and saw that one, that might be a way of snapping people out of a bit of a 50 year old trance, or maybe not. I mean, I, I sometimes half jokingly say, it's a shame that footwear doesn't kill people. Because if they if shoes killed people, then we'd have a tobacco situation situation on our hands where there'd be a lot of incentive to do something about it but it's like yeah, it's shoes
1: yeah it's interesting i do think there's been a change in the podiatric world because i hear more and more podiatrists say these shouldn't be permanent right and to me that's a huge win. that's
0: a big change
1: huge win yeah. Um, I, mean, I made orthotics for like three different pairs of people's shoes. You need them in all of them, right? And 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 honestly, it was not for money at all. Because as a PT, we never charged the same as a podiatrist did, and we right. didn't make a lot of money. I really believed it, and I, I'm going to take the higher road. I don't mean a higher road, but I, I I like to see the good in people, and I think a lot of the podiatrists that I know really believe that these really help.
0: Oh no, I um, agree. And, I agree with that completely. I don't think that anyone. I don't think that anyone's doing it explicitly for the money. I think that they are doing it because they believe that it's useful the money doesn't hurt the money locks in that belief and um, but it's sort of like I was. I remember when I first got back into sprinting 12 years ago or so uh, I went to someone because of some problem I was having and he suggested that I wear an orthotic I said but I'm a sprinter you're going to put me in a three quarter orthotic I'm never on that part of my foot how is it ever going to apply any forces to change anything and you watch this guy's brain explode I mean he he spent like five minutes trying to figure out tell me why it would still be useful and then he kind of realized he was at the end of his rope and had nowhere to go. This was before I knew any of this. It was just, it seemed really obvious that I was going to be on my toes, and the orthotic did not go to my toes. And that was had, a funny one.
1: It does go to your metatarsal heads, though, and it is supporting your arch so that when you land on the ball of your foot, you do bring your heel down, and you do get some support from that orthotic, as even as a forefoot striker.
0: I never It's interesting. I never felt it. There's a company that makes makes a um, a somewhat concave or mm-hmm convex depending on which way you're looking at it um, uh, what sort of carbon fiber insert that they say improves performance and you know you get more spring out and blah 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 and I, I put it on I ran with a, I tried a few of them I said I don't feel a thing because I'm never I'm never loading it in a way that it's going to do whatever it's supposed to do afterwards and besides it's physics you're not going to get more energy out than you put into it but I mean I literally didn't feel a thing and I like sw- I put one in one shoe and nothing in the other and switched them and then I put them both I did everything I could think of to see if I could feel anything and just got nowhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell people, I think that it's important to support the arch. If you have some kind of plantar, active plantar fasciitis, you support any body part when it's,
0: if it's injured. it's injured. Yeah.
1: Right. And, but then you need to slowly remove that so that you can get that strength back. Just like you would with a back brace, a neck brace, a shoulder brace, any other
0: Or getting a cast off your arm. That's the analogy I use. If, if you, your arm's been in a cast, you take it out, it's atrophied. You have two choices. Keep it in a sling for the rest of your life or use it again, and then it'll be fine. Right. So what are you taking a look at now? What's coming up in the wonderful world of Irene Davis research?
1: So we have, gosh, we have a lot of things going on, but um, not all footwear. So we're, we're just getting a study off the ground, looking at basketball players and oh. uh, looking at how they land and looking at tibial shock in basketball players and how that changes throughout the game, throughout the season, how it relates to injury. How fatigue affects how they land, um, how sleep affects how they land. So that's that's a big one that we've got. Um,
0: so we, uh, you know, we made a, a let's call it a demo basketball shoe. I put it on uh, a WNBA player who sent me two emails that were interesting. The first was, I couldn't sprain my ankle in these if you paid me to. And the second was, you know, there's times where I come down from trying to block a shot or rebounding or something, and I'm landing on my heel, and with nothing under my heel, that's really a problem. And so we're trying to find this interesting balance of giving them what they need for this specific use case without creating movement patterns that, we, that they believe and we believe are going to be um, not beneficial. And it's, it's been an interesting thing trying to work that out, especially without a giant budget where we can just make 100 pairs of shoes for her to try and for other people to try.
1: It leads me to another point. A lot of people ask me the question, okay, so minimal shoes for, for running or for walking, but what about for other sports? And you know, walking and running are things that we were adapted to do. Right. We weren't adapted to ski, for example.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And we weren't adapted to um, ice skate and play hockey. And so in the things that we weren't adapted to do, we sometimes have to have things that help us to do those activities that we right. weren't to do. If you don't have a stiff you know, ankle boot in skiing, it's going to be very difficult, right? Right. Um, and so it might be the same with basketball, whereas walking and running, you can do those barefoot. Yeah. Right? You could argue, though, I mean, there are people, there are, there are countries that play soccer barefoot. Yep. Um, when we go to Italy, the kids in the piazza are playing on a concrete piazza barefoot playing soccer yep. at a young age. So um, I think you probably could adapt to some of those things, uh, but that, of course, involves running, which is something we were adapted to
0: do. Well, so. yeah, and there are just these specific situations that happen in some of these sports where you need to adapt to that in some way. But, again, you don't want to encourage you don't want to take that one adaptation or that one intervention and have that apply in such a way that it affects everything else and unnecessarily. So um, that's, I can't wait to hear what happens with that. What else, so what else is in the in top? The um, we
1: are looking at differences between um, forefoot striking in minimal shoes versus forefoot striking in traditional shoes.
0: <laughs> Ooh. So um, this is something, I don't know if we've talked about this one. This is something I started talking about recently when I just started noticing that a couple of people running by me on the track who had good forefoot strike patterns, but they were wearing shoes like this. So they just don't get any of that Achilles spring action going on. They're just, it's like they're limiting what, they can, what their body can do for them. Um, and I don't know, have people been talking about that?
1: We weren't looking at that in particular. We, did, we published a study in MSSE a couple of years back. Hannah Rice was the first author. And we found that when you forefoot strike in a pair of minimal shoes um, versus traditional, well, let's do it the other way around. When you heel strike in a pair of traditional shoes or forefoot strike in a pair of traditional shoes, your resultant load rate, that means the combination of vertical, anterior, posterior, and medial lateral is similar. So
0: the Interesting.
1: The resultant load rate is the same. Bec- and the reason for it is the vertical load rate is less foot strike in a pair of traditional shoes. Okay. The anterior, posterior and medial lateral load rates are higher. Got it. So have, in a sense, higher impacts in the anterior posterior direction right. and the medial lateral direction.
0: So for, for, uh, for human beings. So basically, um, so the anterior posterior is forward and backward. So I'm guessing that what you're seeing is just more braking forces because they're overstriding and slamming on the brakes. And then of course all that motion control stuff.
1: Yeah, in the medial lateral direction, if you've got a flare, right?
0: Yeah. Um, oh yeah.
1: You're gonna land more inverted or more on the outside of your foot, and then you're kind of pushing this way.
0: Yeah.
1: A, a larger lateral force that you're applying to the ground, so you have a greater braking force. Or. Well, yep breaking load rate. So that's the rate of loading. Right. And that was kind of an indication of, of, of uh, impact and a greater laterally applied load. Um, okay. So we also looked and found that people tend to plantar flex more as well when they land in a pair of traditional shoes. When you put them in a pair of minimal shoes, for foot striking, now you see a reduction in the total resultant for load rate. right? And you see, Reductions in each of the components, <laughs> so it's it just gives you that indication that if you're and I tell people if you're going to rear foot strike, keep a hunk of rubber under your heel, right? Because you don't want to foot strike without that. If you want to do that, that's fine. I'm okay with that. If you're going to forefoot strike, we see so many people coming in like this when they land, yeah, um, a pair of traditional shoes and too much plantar flexion. You're gonna if you really want to adopt a proper forefoot strike, you have to do it in minimal shoes. So yeah. this is that interaction of footwear and foot foot strike that I think is really important. And a lot of people miss.
0: Uh, agreed. And well, speaking of things that people miss, what you just highlighted was load rate rather than just total result and load. Yes. And that's, that's something that people totally miss. In fact, that conversation that Lane is involved with now, this is the thing um, that part of the conversation, because it was inspired by Alex Hutchinson's not great um, article. In, that was in outside about total load and not about load rate at all. Can you talk about why those two things are, distinctly and importantly different?
1: I don't know if that's what that article that Alex was talking about. That was He was talking about a different concept, but let me just talk well, about... But,
0: but, but my point is that they never brought up anything about load rate.
1: Yeah. So if you look at a vertical ground reaction force in a runner who's a heel striker, it looks like a glove. I should do right. this. <laughs> yeah, there you Where go. You have an impact peak and then you have a propulsion peak, right? right? And so what happens is this peak here is twice the impact peak. And yet this peak here has, at least in my readings, and our research, never distinguished who gets injured and who does not. Right. Um, and that's because if you look at the rate of loading, this slope here is much more gentle. It doesn't look like it by my hand than this slope. So it's, the, it's that rate of loading. And this has been shown in other studies by, like, um, Radin in animal studies very early on, that if you give a rabbit tibia um, sub-maximal impacts but, but they're impacts, right? right. Um, not, not enough to fracture with one blow. So, so that there's, that's what I mean by that. Um, if you do that repeatedly, then they end up getting a, a stress fracture. They did follow that up with another study looking at cow joints, and they started with a very rhythmic loading to the cow joint, no damage at all. Then they started to interject these impacts right. into that, and they had – a very quick, rapid cartilage wear. So the human body doesn't like impacts in general. We need some, bone needs some loading for sure. Yeah, correct. The studies that have been done with children and get increasing their bone loads have been done with jumping, which is a forefoot strike pattern. So right. I think forefoot striking and jumping does give you that stimulation that you need. But, you know, I, I just think that there's, there's a point, I think, with yeah, uh, me where, you know, you have too much load rate.
0: Yeah, well, you definitely need some because some amount of impact force is what inspires increased bone density, and there's, there's, some, there's value there. There's something else that it does, especially with jumping. Uh, jumping increases nitric oxide production. Hmm. And so um, that's a really interesting one that very few people talk about. Uh, I don't know what the real effect of that is, but someone I know there was some hospital where they had realized this. And for people who were bedridden, um, they had something that was just while they were lying in their bed, that was just tapping their feet basically. Cause yeah. just that motion increased nitric oxide, which was helpful for them. Um, yeah. There's all, there's all, it's so funny again, there's all these things that just doing natural movement does that are valuable and we have to prove it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know. You think about somebody jumping off of a, I don't know, a table or some kind of stand, and they land. They're not going to land with their knees. Their
0: Locked. No. They're not, right.
1: right. Gonna, they're gonna, first of all, they're going to land on the ball of their foot. They're not going to land on their heels. Right. Something went wrong, right? So that's going to give them that, that um, time to slow their center mass down through the, the dorsiflexion because they're landing with their foot like this so they get to yep. that hand the knee flexion the hip flexion so we naturally do that And yeah. if you're out on the trail and you're unsure of yourself you land on the ball of your foot you don't even if you're a heel striker you know when you stop at a stoplight you don't stop and land on your heels when you're waiting for the light and you're running
0: <laughs> <laughs> that. You
1: know, it, it is natural so I just think you know it, it to me it, it seems like an easy argument but there are some people that are very very passionate about
0: it? Well, we're in an interesting situation. Zero Shoes is growing really quickly. We're getting a lot more attention. And and it's not just about us, obviously. I said uh, on a podcast recently that if we went under and the whole natural movement thing took off because the big companies adopted it, I'm totally fine with that. I, I just want this to be a real thing. Yeah. But I also know that the extent to which we continue to grow before or in lieu of any big companies deciding that they've got to figure out a way to do the same thing, uh, they're not going to take it well. They're not going to just go, Oh, oops, we are wrong and just change. And they're not going to, Uh, I I tend to work on the idea that, you know, the best idea wins, which is just not the case. And I'm kind of trying to figure out how to prepare ourselves as a company for the kind of uh, response that, frankly, I would never in a million years think to do. That would be just some underhanded something or personal attacks or whatever it might be. Because people don't react well when they're backed into a corner. And what we're trying to do is back a $100 billion industry into a corner.
1: Yeah. I'm in favor of taking the high road and just getting as many people on board. And the question is, how do we do it?
0: Well, agreed. I mean, that's the, that's the only thing we can do. But at the same time, I, we have to be prepared defensively. And mm-hmm. and it's something that's not natural to me. It's not the way I normally think. No, um, so it's really that. tricky.
1: Yeah. yeah, it is tricky. But I'm hoping that, you know, and that you asked this question earlier on about how do you get people – onto this? How do you get them to experience it? Because I, I, I mean, you have to testimonial after testimonial yeah. once they've done the minimal shoes, as long as they haven't tried to do it too quick. I've right. had people who've given up, but once you do it, it's just, they love it.
0: You can't they go back.
1: It. Yeah. And yeah. they can't go back. You, once you are accustomed to minimal shoes, going back to cushion shoes is just weird. So how do we, uh, Steven, how do we get pe- more people towards this minimal shoe
0: I think, you know, it Just this just occurred to me and it never had before. I think that we need to stage more events where we can have the quote debate. And I say quote debate because, you know, we have all the evidence on our side, I would argue, but there, people think it's a debate. So what I'm thinking of, I'm not trying to make a comment pro or con for this analogy, but I'm suddenly thinking about the whole debate series that went on with the new atheists when Sam Harris's book got popular and Daniel Dennett and you know, all all the guys that are talked about as the new atheists and they basically went on tour and they just did a whole, I mean, these guys made a career out of debating people who they knew they would never convince because their job was not to convince the person they were debating against, but, and not even to convince the people who are diehards in the audience, but for the people who were, new to it or on the fence. It just gave them a platform that they wouldn't otherwise have because a debate construct is inherently entertaining. What, for whatever reason, watching people yell at each other you know, is entertaining. Maybe we need to start doing something like that of just finding a good PR agency who can schedule these kind of conversations. Where it's you know you and me against some designers from pick your favorite shoe company um, or whomever it might be and making these things more publicly available just anything that's going to get a conversation going and and it's sort of like when I think about the articles that get written about barefoot or minimalist they always try to present. Quote both sides. I, I just keep doing quotes all day. They they try to present both sides of an argument as if there are really two sides of an argument, and invariably the person who's anti barefoot, anti minimalist, has had no experience with what we're doing, and they're just making up stories based on what they imagine, based on their own preconceptions. But to do that as something where it's alive real-time event with audience interaction rather than an article where you you know they're going to misquote you to begin with. Maybe it's something like that. And I do think back to the ACSM event we were at where the Q&A part was a whole lot of fun. Um, I'm just remembering one person saying to me, you said that you developed arches in your previously flat feet um, when you switched to minimalist shoes. How did you do that? And I said, I used them. <laughs> that was the end. I mean, it's like the silence in the room at that moment was so delightful. And there's just, you, you, I don't think you can, you can get, make those things happen in any other way than a big public forum with a whole bunch of people where you're really, uh, you got to be on your toes because not only for the people that you're talking, debating against, but the people who are in the room and that would be, that would be terribly entertaining. And there's a handful of people who could do that really well. You being one of them, I would argue I can do that also. And, um, Again, the entertainment the entertainment value has to be high enough. Um, that I think that, that that may be a way. We'll have to have to look into that. Yeah. Speaking of the ACSM thing and, and all of this, I want to kind of wrap this up with the way I remember your last question, or and what was the last question at the ACSM, where it, the way I'm remembering it, correct me if you or tell me if you remember it differently, was your your question to the panel was started by, look, in the 60s, we were wearing super thin-soled running shoes. We played basketball in Chuck Taylors, and we weren't seeing the kind of injuries or the severity of injuries or the type of injuries we're seeing now. So what problem were you trying to solve, and why isn't it working? And my memory is that that was met with a uh, rather amazing silence.
1: I don't remember that.
0: Oh, really? Oh, I have, I have it recorded. i have to look at it again. It was great.
1: Yes, you'll have to, because I remember saying that if we were sitting here 50 years ago, we wouldn't even be having this conversation.
0: Oh, that's funny because I don't remember that. I'll we'll have to look have at the video again. remember
1: that. But yeah, you have to bring that, that audio up again. Okay. I think that you have to be careful. I don't think we know how many injuries, that, that injuries have changed. We just don't have good records. This is the problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the problem is... I'm really frustrated. I know we have to wrap this up. But I'm very frustrated because people say to me, well, Irene, show me that minimal shoes don't, you don't have so much, many injuries. I have put that grant in. You have no no idea how many times. I'm sure. And it's being read by people who just really are, are anti-minimal shoes. It's very clear. By the comments, they don't get it. They think right. it's dangerous. And, you know, so I, I, if I can't do it, and I've got a lot of like pilot data and that kind of thing. I'm not sure. I mean, i'm I'm not saying I'm the best grant writer, but I feel like i'm I'm really well positioned to do that kind of research. So well, I again, that- Research is really the way to go, but it's part of the way
0: to go. Well, and again, and again, it's it's interesting. Um, I've said to someone recently that maybe the best thing that could happen is that um, at some point, you know, we're partners with some other entity, and they don't want me to be working for the company because, as an independent person who could sponsor research, then even though I have a, would have a background that would presuppose me to believing in the value of minimalist footwear, at least I'm literally independent at that time. I'm not making any additional money as a result of it, et cetera. And so if, you know, if not me, maybe we just need to find a few well-heeled people who read born to run and believe in it, whether they're, whether they've adopted it or not, uh, to fund something where we could do it. And granted, a, a really good study is going to be a longitudinal thing. It's going to take quite a bit of time. Um, that's you that
1: have to, you have to randomize people. I mean, yeah. we have a good study to do you
0: it's tough. Have
1: to perspective randomized, and we have to follow them for at least a year.
0: Um, what's I just blanked on Ross's last name? Sci, um, science, of, uh, Sport science, science, of sport in South Africa. Um, Ross. Oh man, I'm blank. I'm really horrible with names lately. Anyway, he, he and I've been talking about this or we first talked about it like 10 years ago and he was suggesting that he would try and find a way to do it. It was just like, let's just get a couple, a bunch of people and let's do the simple one. Let's just throw them all in minimalist footwear and just see what happens. And have have a randomized I, I I agree, but he was just saying, look, let's just get the ball rolling.
1: it will be criticized if you don't. So yeah, yeah yeah that, but, yeah.
0: It's trick well look you can randomize it of course you can't blind people to this there's you know they know what they're wearing.
1: No no, no, no but you can randomize you and do what you can to make it you know as as um dil- dil- you have to be as diligent as you can.
0: It's it's interesting though because if you can't blind a study people are going to walk in with preconceptions that may impact their activity. If they believe that minimalism is good, they may do something different than if they believe minimalism is bad. It's almost like we'd have to track them for some amount of time before we even recruited them for the study to see what they're doing and make sure that that doesn't change once they switch into whatever they switch. Yeah,
1: could do that. So there'd, there'd be some thought that would have to go into it. But
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. You.
1: it's either that or bake sales and car washers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think bake I think bake sale is the solution to everything. National debt, national bake sale. I think there's definitely, (laughs) there's a lot of cookies that I would like to sample that would, you know, help with the national debt. I think it's a good plan. Well, on that brilliant note where we have solved all the world's problems with a bake sale, um, I want to first thank you. Um, this is, as always, a pleasure. And I know we can keep doing this for hours because when we get together, we do. And mm-hmm. and looking forward to when we get to do this next. And maybe we'll be able to craft a, um, a good public event that we can that we can get out and have a good argument slash debate slash conversation with some people who think that we're full of shit it would be a blast. So let me wrap it up by saying for all of you who are watching and listening, thank you so much uh, for being part of the movement movement. Of course you can find us at www.jointhemovementmovement.com where you'll find all the ways that you can interact with this. Um, and of course, like and share and subscribe and review. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. If you have any questions, drop them in the emails to move at zero, um, wait, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And as always until next time, Live life feet first.